you got the wrong guy for the job. Have you ever said something like that? You feel way underqualified and you can see the person next to you is probably way more qualified than you. The Bible's full of those kinds of moments. You've got the wrong guy or girl for the job. The classic example of that is one that we read earlier back in Exodus 4 with Moses. God commissioned Moses to challenge Egypt the greatest superpower of his day. And when he does that, Moses comes face to face with his own unimpressive nature and his own unworthiness for the task. So maybe you remember how Moses begins his doubts and objections. He asks, who am I that I should go unto Pharaoh and that I should bring forth the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt? And then he goes off and rattles off several different objections, and God meets each one of them in turn. And eventually, Moses gets to the point that people just won't believe him. And why should they? Moses is a murderer who went AWOL for 40 years and now decides to show up again. So raising this objection, God tells Moses, what's in your hand? And Moses said, a staff. So face to face with his own unimpressive nature that he is so unqualified, God shows his own power by using the simplest thing imaginable, a dead stick of wood. In his book, No Little People, Francis Schaeffer traces all the times that God used Moses' staff God began by telling Moses to toss the staff on the ground and it turned into a serpent. And then he said, pick up the staff again and it turned back into wood. Moses would do the same thing when he went to Egypt in Pharaoh's court. And Pharaoh's dark magicians did the same thing and yet Moses' serpent swallowed up Pharaoh's serpents. But God kept on using this staff. God told Moses to put his staff in the Nile River, turning it to blood. Plague after plague in the Exodus, God told Moses to stretch out his staff. When Israel came to the shores of the Red Sea, God told Moses to lift up his staff and the waters divided. When entering the wilderness and Israel was thirsty, God told Moses to take his staff and strike the rock and water came out. When faced with military enemies, Moses took his staff and lifted his arms above the battle and victory came. God used this dead stick of wood for over 80 years years. And what's the secret? On its own, Moses' staff is exactly what it is, a simple dead stick of wood. Francis Schaeffer in his book says the key, the secret, comes in Exodus 4 verse 20, which says the staff of Moses became the staff of God. We may feel weak, 
unimpressive, limited, sinful. And to all that we say, yep, that's right. But God is none of those things. Schaefer says this, Consider the ways that God used a piece of dead stick of wood. God so used a stick of wood can be a banner cry for each of us. As the staff of Moses became the staff of God, so that which is me must become the me of God. Today we arrive at a story in Mark's gospel of a woman who comes to Jesus and gets this. She comes to Jesus and says, I know I am the wrong girl for the job in every way imaginable. I know I have nothing to offer, but she sees something greater in Jesus. He's the one who can so use a dead stick of wood. This woman knew she was small, but she also knew that Jesus can overcome any weakness. Hers is a story of humble, confident faith that meets a merciful and mighty Savior. So if you're not there yet, turn with me to Mark chapter 7, and we're going to begin in verse 24. If you're looking at the Bible in the pew rack, you'll find that on page 843. 843. Mark 7 beginning in verse 24. If you're new to the Bible or haven't been in there in a while, I remind you that the chapter numbers are the numbers in big, bold print, and the little numbers uh, are the verse numbers. So when I say 7, 24, that's big number 7, little number 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and he did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her. And he said to her, Let the little children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. This short story packs a powerful punch. It shows us this, that real faith knows its unworthiness but also knows God's mercy can overcome that unworthiness. That's the main point of our time together, and I think the main point of this passage. Real faith knows its unworthiness, but also knows God's mercy can overcome that unworthiness. This is a humility and a confidence that stems from a right belief both about God and about ourselves. And so we're going to unpack this story, and the central part of it comes in this brief but important exchange between Jesus and this Gentile woman. That central part's found in verses 27 to 28. 
And so we'll unfold the story just the way it goes around that central part. Before that exchange, verses 24 to 26. During that exchange, verses 27 to 28. And after that exchange, verses 29 to 30. At each stage of the story or drama, we see something of Jesus and the woman. We see something of the object of faith and what faith looks like. So just to give you a bit of a running start, I'd like to do this as we're making our way through books. This is our second, this is the second part of our journey in the Gospel of Mark. Last year at this time, we made our way through the first five chapters of Mark. And this year, we hope to get through chapter 8. You may know that the gospel, that word gospel means good news. So the fuller and more formal title of Mark is the gospel according to Mark. And this gospel, this good news, is fundamentally about a person. And that is Jesus Christ. Mark makes that clear in the very first chapter of his book, Mark 1.1. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to fallen, broken earth to usher in the kingdom of God. His arrival is gospel, is good news. So Jesus proves that he has come to do this, to usher in the kingdom of God, by frequently giving signs that show that's the case. Signs of miracles and healings to verify that this is what he's come to do, and even to give a sneak preview of what it will look like when the kingdom of God is fully here. But part of Jesus' mission to bring in the kingdom of God is bringing in people to that kingdom. And to do that, he must lay down his life for them. So while we see something of Jesus' greatness throughout Mark's gospel, we also see a thread that underlines all of it, that Jesus continues to be rejected. And friends, this is actually a part of the plan. Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. Following the pattern of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. So, we've seen in Mark that this good news of Jesus is not a bare announcement. Included in this good news is the necessary response to it. And that response is repentance and faith. To turn from our sin, to turn from living to ourselves, and to turn toward Christ. Believing in him alone for the forgiveness of our sins. That response, too, is made clear from the very outset of the book of Mark. Repent and believe the gospel. So verse 24 of chapter 7 tells us where Jesus is geographically. So we flash back to his hometown, uh, the beginning of chapter 6, where we picked Mark back up. He was in Nazareth, and Nazareth rejected Jesus back at the beginning of chapter 6. And then Jesus went to the area of Galilee in northeast Israel. This is where most of his disciples were from. This is where Jesus spent most of his public ministry of teaching and healing. And now chapter 7 opens, last time we were together in Mark, with Jesus having another run-in with these religious authorities known as scribes and Pharisees. Jesus explained to the scribes and Pharisees that they had a wrong view of what it means to be unclean. 
Jesus told the Pharisees that they missed the point. That they went all, through all of their external rituals and never touched their heart. Their check engine light came on in their car and they took it to the car wash and not the mechanic. Now, Jesus goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon. This would be Gentile or non-Jewish lands, which is where our story begins. So jumping into the first stage of the story, we notice first what happens before the main encounter between Jesus and the Gentile woman. So in this before stage, Mark builds the set of the drama with how the story plays out. He'll do this by giving information about the scene's two main characters, Jesus and the woman. So verse 24, he starts by telling us something about Jesus. It kind of seem like inconsequential details, but I think they're actually important. He tells us where Jesus went and what he hoped would happen when he got there. Seems simple enough. Details worth noticing, though. Where Jesus went is significant for a couple of reasons. First, the region of Tyre and Sidon was a fully Gentile land. It was outside of the geography of Israel. It's the first time Jesus actually went to outside the geography of Israel. And this would be today modern-day Lebanon, northwest of Galilee. Now, it was one thing to be around Gentiles within the boundaries of Israel. It was another thing to step on Gentile turf. So, but more than that, though, Jesus' trip to the region of Tyre and Sidon is significant because Tyre and Sidon didn't exactly like Israel. Actually, that's a bit of an understatement. Josephus who is an ancient Jewish historian, said that the people of Tyre were notoriously our bitterest enemies. And it had been that way for a long time. There wasn't a new phenomenon. Prophets like Ezekiel and Zechariah spoke against the wealth and terror of Tyre. And we can go even further back than that. This rift between these places goes that far. To a figure like Jezebel, who was from Tyre. Jezebel, you know, the one married to King Ahab of the northern kingdom of Israel, who nearly single-handedly destroyed that kingdom because she was so devoted to false gods. So there are probably parts of town that we avoid, either consciously or subconsciously, the part of town where you stick out Part of town where you may lock your doors. And that's a discussion for another day of why towns are broken up like that. But it is a reality. But this is something different. This is like living 50 miles from a bitter enemy. I don't know if we have experience in that. I don't know if we have experience in living that close to a geopolitical enemy. That would be like if Ashtabula County declared war against Cuyahoga County. I mean, there are definitely people from Ashtabula who live in Cuyahoga, but it would be a whole other deal to go and live in Ashtabula if you're from Cuyahoga. So for Jesus, it was one thing for Jews to live around Gentiles in the region of Israel. It was another thing 
for Jews to go to Gentile turf. So, if Jewish people of Jesus' day didn't normally do what he did here, and if Tyre was this bitter of an enemy toward Israel, why would Jesus do this then? Why would he go there? Well, there are many ways we can answer. We should first look at the text. What did Jesus want to happen when he got to Tyre? So look at the second part of verse 24. It says he didn't want to know, uh, he didn't want anyone to know he was there. What's up with that? I think it's helpful to keep in mind what has happened over the last chapter and a half. You remember at the beginning, Nazareth, his hometown, basically kicks him out. And then you remember the guy who's in charge of the whole region of Galilee, Herod Antipas? He cut off the head of John the Baptist, the guy who came before Jesus. And then you remember the encounter Jesus just had in the first part of chapter 7 with the Pharisees and the scribes who are literally committed to finding a way to kill him. I think this is Jesus getting a brief respite from all that chaos. So Tyre isn't the place where he would find trouble. Now, Jesus didn't shy away from trouble when it came, but he didn't go looking for it either. And the same thing goes for fame. Jesus didn't go hunting for fame. He could have done a very easy job doing that. The guy could heal people with a touch. If he wanted to be as famous as possible, he could have been. He didn't go looking for fame or trouble. Fame and trouble found him. So Jesus may not have gone to Tyre to minister to people. He to get respite, perhaps even to invest in his disciples, who if we use a math analogy, should have been in calculus, but we're still in remedial algebra. But even though Jesus didn't go to Tyre for public ministry, when opportunity came, he met it. He has a readiness to meet a need, and he doesn't shy away from it. So a big thing we shouldn't miss in Jesus going to this region is willingness. Willingness. In Jesus' willingness to go there, he's already displaying that he practices what he preaches. That uncleanness begins with the heart. That's how Mark sets the scene for Jesus, the one who went to Tyre, a Gentile region that was antagonistic toward Israel and who went with every intention of laying low. But even before the main stuff starts, he also details what's the deal with this woman. There's another character in this drama, a woman who comes to Jesus for help. And what's her deal? What do we know about her? If she were writing a cover letter for Jesus to, to write to Jesus to say why he, she, he should help her. What would she put on that cover letter? Well, first, I hope she would write Jesus instead of to whom it may concern. That's the key to a good cover letter. It's like one start. Well, she could spruce up that letter all that she wanted in describing herself, but that letter still would not be pretty. 
Look at all the things that Mark includes in describing her. First of all, she's a woman. Obvious enough. But in general, women had lower status than men in that day. Second, she's a Gentile, born and raised in an unclean land. And she has a daughter who has a demon, literally called an unclean spirit. With all of that on her cover letter, letter, she still submits it to Jesus. She fell down at his feet and begged him. So here we are at the beginning of the story, even before the main action takes place. And I think there are things for us to take away still. We see two main characters, one a man, one a woman, one a Jew, the other the Gentile, one clean, the other unclean. And even at the beginning, I think there are takeaways from us. The first is we got to keep in mind where this story is, what it comes after. This story comes immediately after Mark 1 to 23. Mark 7, that is 1 to 23. A discussion of what truly makes a person unclean. And here, Jesus has an immediate opportunity to practice what he preaches. Here was a perfect test case. In, in an unclean land, an unclean woman who has a daughter with an unclean spirit comes to him. What's Jesus going to do? He just called the Pharisees hypocrites. Was Jesus going to be one himself? The answer is no. So friends, if Mark 7, 1 to 23, is kind of like our Sunday mornings. What we say, we believe. I think Mark 7, verses 24 to 30, is like our Monday through Saturday. Will we live it out? Will we practice what we say we believe? Is Jesus going to stop being Jesus when we leave this place? Is the gospel still going to be the gospel when we leave this place? Will sinners who stand in their own sin and not in Christ still be hopeless when we leave this place? We must ask ourselves, while yes, Jesus went to Tyre to lay low for a while, but he did not stop being him when he went there. So we must ask ourselves, where are the places we escape to and are tempted to compromise what we say we believe? So are you living like the gospel and Jesus are true when you're alone, when you're on the internet? when you're eating lunch, when you're running errands, when you're doing homework. Further, friends, you never know when an opportunity to live out what you say you believe will come. It may come in a place so unexpected like Tyre. So let's pray that God would help us be faithful, help us be consistent, and like Jesus, help us be ready to live out what we say we believe. I think there's another takeaway too. We're going to take a deeper look at the faith of this woman in the story. But even at this point, there are things we should notice. You look at verse 25. Look at verse 25. 
It's a long subject in that verse. Thinking back to English class here. The subject is a woman whose little daughter has an unclean spirit. There's the subject. And then look at the verbs and the order of those verbs after that. This woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Maybe you're here this morning and you've done the first of those verbs. In fact, you're doing the first of those verbs right now. You are hearing about Jesus. Friends, that's great. The Bible tells us in Romans 10 that faith comes by hearing. That's why we're so committed to preaching. We're just committed to preaching long sermons even. That faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. But hearing is not an end in itself. We should know that Jesus' work as our substitute, the one who lives and dies in our place, doesn't apply to us until we receive it. After you hear, you must go on to the next verbs of verse 25. Come and fall at his feet. This makes the good news of Jesus, I don't know how great of an analogy this is, but I'm going to go for it anyway, less like a news program. You know, you watch the news, it tells you stuff, you turn it off, you go about your day. And more like an infomercial. You think about an infomercial, they give you the whole spiel. By the end of it, you are convinced that you need something that you didn't know you needed. And then what do you have to do at the end of the infomercial if you want it? You got to call. You got to do something. You can't just hear it. There's a response built into it. So here, it's more that hearing is important. But you're meant to go on to the next verbs of verse 25. Come and fall at his feet. If you haven't done that, you haven't done that for the first time, that's why we're here to talk to you what that means. Answer questions. Explore that, friends. It's the most important thing you can do today. Well, friends, it's a reminder to us when we speak of the gospel and when we speak of Jesus to our friends and family, we have to include the necessity of a response. We'll see more of what this response looked like in the woman and what she thought she was doing when she, she did that, when she put words to her actions. But she heard, she came, she fell at his feet. All right, that's scene one. We're going to keep going. Scene two. Scene one, we got some character development, and the characters meet. Jesus is in a strange land in a house where he doesn't want to be known. Then a woman who can check off every unclean box comes to him and asks him for help. And what happens next? Well, that's the next section. Follow along, verses 27 to 28. Labeling this section, during. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. New stage, same thing. Again, we see something of Jesus. We see something of the woman. Now, if we make a snap judgment, what we see about Jesus here is not good. I mean, isn't he turning her away? Isn't he calling her a dog? Which, like, is not a compliment. 
and more often wild scavengers than pets in that day, not used positively in other places in the Bible? Isn't Jesus basically saying, you're not the kind of person I've come to help? This is unlike the Jesus we've seen before. This is unlike the Jesus who said in other places, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. This is unlike the Jesus, even if we've seen him deal with other Gentiles. You remember in John chapter 4, him dealing with the Samaritan woman at the well. This is unlike the Jesus we see after his resurrection, when he tells his disciples to take the gospel to the Gentiles. So what gives here? Maybe this is a peek underneath the mask that Jesus wears, and we get to see who he really is. Well, friends, that's if we make a snap judgment, and let's not do that. I know the air we breathe right now is just immediate reactions and outrage to the smallest hint of controversy, but let's try to catch some fresh air and be slow to speak and quick to listen. But even when we do that, even when we try to listen and think about it, we might be asking the same question as Justin Bieber. What do you mean? No believers in here. All right. <laughs> what does Jesus mean when he says what he does in verse 27? There are a couple of ways we can take this. Jesus might mean that his mission gives priority to his people, the Jewish people, and not the Gentiles. This would be something that this woman would have expected to hear from a Jewish rabbi. It's certainly something that the Pharisees of the previous portion of chapter 7 would have said. Or, Jesus might be emphasizing that she is interrupting the family meal. That he wasn't entire for the masses of people, but to spend time with the disciples. So in the supper analogy, the disciples eat first, and the dogs will eat, but only after. And actually, the word used for dog here means little dog, which would more likely refer to animals who were allowed in the house. So which one is it? I think it's a mixture of both. In either way, it's not a positive reaction. Who she was and the timing of her being there both disqualified her from eating at the table. You know what Jesus does? He reminds her of that. And why would he do that? Why would he point out the obvious? I think we know too much of Jesus' character and compassion to conclude that he does this because he's such a big bigot and he has so much intolerance. No, he does this to test her faith. Think of what she's already displayed. This woman already has displayed, she's already taken a high cost to come to Jesus. She would have broken a long list of societal norms. Women didn't come to men in that day. Not less a Gentile woman to a Jewish man, and not less a Gentile woman to a Jewish teacher. And she would have been breaking societal norms of her own land. I mean, certainly there would have been other city gods and deities why not go to them? Why go to this Jesus? 
but she went anyway. And so what Jesus does here, by pointing out all the things that would supposedly disqualify her, he is testing and drawing out her faith. He's allowing her to put words to her actions. So Jesus just called her a dog who has no seat at the table. Friends, if somebody said that to you, what would you say back? Now, if some of you got a short fuse in here, you'd be like, I'm ready. We're throwing hands right now, as the guys say. Now, I know it's a little different because it's Jesus who says this, but still, it, it wouldn't be all that unreasonable to take offense here. But she doesn't do that. You know, what are, the ball's in her court, verse 28. And those are the first two words she spoke to Jesus. What did she say? Yes, Lord. Now, sometimes people would use that word Lord as kind of a polite title, something like sir. I think there's more to that here. I think she recognizes and knows who he is. He's the one his own people have been looking for. And she knows who Jesus is and doesn't take offense at what he said. She actually agrees with what he has said about her. If this is the interview process again, and Jesus just read back her cover letter to her and tells her, you know you have no qualifications for this job, right? What she's saying is like, yep, I know. She doesn't say, how dare you say that? She doesn't say, no, 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 you don't understand. If you knew what happened to me, you would know why I am this disqualified. No, she says, yes, Lord. Friends, Jesus won't make any sense unless you share this woman's perspective. Jesus won't make any sense. Tim Keller points out the irony of having faith in Jesus that this woman displays. He says, only if you admit you are a dog under the table can you become a child at the table. Real faith knows its unworthiness. And isn't that the opposite of everything we're told to believe about ourselves? How do we get this perspective, though? How do we see this about ourselves? Well, friends, we'll begin to see the magnitude of our sin and how unworthy we are when we start comparing ourselves not to other people, but to God himself. Not to other people, but to God himself. And if you aren't humbled when you compare yourself to God, then you have too small a view of God. If you want this woman's humble faith, you know what else you should do? You should listen and take seriously what God says about us. I mean, we're talking about the one who made us, right? We're talking about the one who is not limited in his knowledge like we are. We're talking about the one who is unclouded by sin or bias, unlike us. His opinion should hold some weight. We We don't even have to look back that far. Look back at uh, the first part of chapter 7 in Mark. What Jesus says comes out of the heart of man. Back in verse 22 and 23. 
We could look at another place where Jesus teaches about prayer in Matthew 7. Just this short little line of what God, who God says we are. Jesus says, if you who are evil. Just three little quick words. Just like, all right, tell us what you really think. If you who are evil. If you don't agree with Jesus about who you are, then he won't make any sense to you. Because you won't need him. It might be that you don't wake up to who God says you are until God allows something for you to see that. A huge event in this woman's life allowed her to see her desperate need for Christ. It brought her to the end of her rope and said, I'm helpless and have nothing to offer but my sin. And friends, that's when Jesus says, All right, let's get started. But notice her statement doesn't end with her agreeing about her unworthiness. We see her humility in those first two words, yes, Lord. And we see her confidence in the rest of the verse. She says, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. We don't have to try very hard, at least I think, to see that we are dogs under the table. The hidden sins of our past, the cries of our hearts, speak of how guilty we are. But just like it would have been wrong for the woman to disagree with Jesus' assessment of her, it would have also been wrong for the woman to conclude that he couldn't do anything about it. She may have had a low view of herself, but she has a big view of Christ. I know I'm a dog, she says, but I need your grace and I know you are merciful and powerful enough to help one even like me. So friends, coming to Jesus means being humble enough to say you are sinful and helpless, but confident enough to say that he overcomes that. You agree with what John Newton, the former slave trader and the writer of the hymn Amazing Grace, said toward the end of his life. I may have shared this before, but it's so good. He said, although my memory is fading, this I know, that I am a great sinner and Christ is a great Savior. An accurate view of ourselves and of God, humility and confidence, that's faith in the grace of Christ. All right, real quick, what happens next? The final scene of the drama, verses 29 and 30. Jesus affirms the woman's faith, heals her daughter without even seeing her, mind you, and the woman goes back to find her daughter well. I love the way Martin Luther summarized what's happened. A little bit longer of a quote, but it's so good. You say, the woman responds, that I am a dog. Let it be. I will gladly be a dog. Now give me the consideration that you would give a dog. Thus she catches Christ with his own words, and he is happy to be caught. Very well, she says, if I am a dog, I ask no more than a dog's rights. I am not a child, nor am I of Abraham's seed, but you are a rich Lord and set a lavish table. 
Give your children the bread and a place at the table. I do not wish that. Let me, merely like a dog, pick up the crumbs under the table, allowing me that which the children don't need or even miss, and I will be content therewith. By such tenacity and unflinching faith, the Lord is taken captive and pressed to answer. O woman, if you can tolerate and survive such blows to your heart, so may it be granted to you even as you believe. Yours is not the typical pattern that I find. My people are soon offended in me and fall back at the slightest pretext, even though I shared with them a salutary teaching. You, however, cling firmly to the hope that I will help you and you do not let go of me. If you still have your Bible open to Mark 7, uh, flip, back, flip back to Mark 5. Just flip back one page and you'll find it. Flip back to Mark 5 and find verses 22 and 23. There it reads, then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, that is Jesus, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be well and live. Jairus, the woman in Mark 7. Both come to Jesus in desperation not caring about what it, what it makes them look like. The synagogue hated Jesus, and the woman would be an untouchable to a Jewish man. Both have a daughter who is in trouble. Now, look at their cover letters. One was a ruler in a synagogue. Nothing unclean about that. Qualified in every earthly way. The other was a purebred Gentile. Everything unclean about her, unqualified in every earthly way. Jesus acted and healed both. You might be Jairus, or at least you think you're Jairus. Qualified in every earthly way, a good reputation in the world. Or you might be the woman, unimpressive, unqualified, not held in high esteem in the world. No matter your past, good or bad, no matter your status, rich or poor, no matter your age, young or old, no matter your upbringing, each of us have in common what these two individuals had in common. We need Jesus. Those Jesus heals are those who know they need healing and can't give it to themselves. Real faith is knowing our desperate need that we deserve God's judgment for our sin. But real faith knows the grace and power of the one who meets that need, Jesus, who bore the judgment for our sin on the cross. Friends, hear this about Jesus. Come to him and stay there. Let's pray. 
Oh, Lord, thank you for your kindness. Where would we be without it? Thank you for your mercy. Where would we be without it? God, we, like this woman, are unqualified in every way. We have a desperate need for mercy. Our sins, they are many, and we cannot bear them ourselves, but you can. So we gladly come to you and lay them at your feet and say, God, restore us because you are able and keep us there. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.